Hello and welcome back to Fish Tales. Today is episode 12, going out a little later than expected, as today's guest and myself tried and failed a couple of times to do a phone-in conversation. Our first attempt was cut short by our kids. The second was later that night when both of us were far too tired to even string a coherent sentence together, but we got through it, only to find out that the phone-in link we had used had a time drift of between one and seven seconds. So you would have been treated to the phenomena of questions being answered before they'd even been asked. Finally, today, we were able to reschedule with a different system, and luckily, it was by far the best of the free conversations anyway. So without further ado, it's my pleasure to introduce you to the baby-faced assassin of fly fishing. Welcome, Lars Monk. Thank you, Jay. It's great to have you. No, I'm glad to be here. Well, in, in the matter, I'm here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, we've had many conversations uh, over the years between us from afar, so it should feel like any normal day to us. Yeah, pretty much. So I would love for people to get to know more about Lars from the the beginning and um, how you came to work in Swedish Lapland with your destination development. Yeah, yeah, I suppose it's a rather long story, but we could try and do the fast forward version of it. Yeah. Uh, well, for those who don't know, I was I was born and raised in Denmark. Uh, born in eighty one in West Jutland in Denmark. Uh, I started fishing really early. Uh, the typical stuff with a I, ha- I have a dad who who's always been into uh, into into fishing. So I started when I was like five or six, uh, fishing in often small streams in in Jutland uh, for trout and. Uh, Eventually, I would I would start course fishing more, even for pike, like with live baits and stuff like that. Yeah, and, and re- really enjoyed that. I thought it was it was super cool back then. Um, even tried fly fishing back then. My father bought me a fly rod quite early. Uh, used it a few times and, and caught a few fish on it. But but I was still mainly into the to the spin fishing. Yeah. Uh, as I grew a little bit older and came in the age of uh, puberty. Uh, and parties and girls and everything that comes yeah. with it got more important for my part and and so for for uh, yeah a number of years I, I didn't fish that much anymore uh, still had it sort of in the background but it wasn't wasn't important in the same way and and together with all of this uh, partying and doing other stuff I even I found another creative business that I that I was quite involved in in three, four years, I started to paint graffiti, uh, <laughs> which I, I really enjoyed it. And, and still yeah. today, even even though it's cost me quite a bit, uh, I still think it was a good creative period in my life. Yeah. Uh, I mean, of course, it wasn't clever, everything you did. Uh, a mm-hmm. lot of the stuff we did was, uh, was of course, illegal. And, and, and eventually we got caught and we had to, to pay for it all. But I mean, we were, we were young teenagers and probably bored. Should have been fishing instead, but 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 we turned to graffiti and, and it, it was cool times. I mean, growing up in in Denmark in in the late nineties, painting yeah. graffiti. Um, but eventually, after after actually my third conviction, uh, I had a long discussion with my dad and my family, and and we decided, well, the best thing would probably be for me to stop with graffiti. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and I actually I, I agreed on it myself. I mean, I, I saw that it was it was maybe not not the right path to go down. So sure. Um, then my mother's sister uh, told me, "Why don't you go abroad, do something else?" 
And I was like, yeah, sure. What, what, what were you thinking about? And, and um, my mother's sisters, she did uh, a bunch of years in Greenland when she was younger. Uh-huh. And she was like, why don't you go to Greenland? I was like, yeah, maybe. And then we had we started looking around what what there could be of work for me to do. I mean, I was I was young. I didn't have a lot of experience, and and eventually we didn't find anything in Greenland. But we found a, a farm in in Iceland on the south part of the island where yeah. uh, they were looking for. It's a little bit like au pair, but instead of taking care of kids, you would then work with farming. Yeah, sure. Uh, and I contacted the family, and uh, they said all good. So, uh, without knowing anything about Iceland, really, uh, or anything much at all at the time, I, uh, I packed my bags and I moved to Iceland. And the plan was to stay in Iceland for six months uh, and then return. Uh, but I really enjoyed Iceland. Uh, I come from a relatively small city in, in western parts of Denmark, but uh, my father's family is from, from the west coast. My father, he used to be a commercialized fisherman for right. almost 50 years, so... I've been a lot of, I spent a lot of my, my childhood and, and even teenage years on, on, on the West Coast uh, in less populated places. So I've always enjoyed solitude and, yeah. and stuff like that. So when I got to Iceland, I, I pretty much picked up, picked up fishing once again. Uh, started to go around and exploring a little bit on my own. Didn't know much about what I was doing or anything. First year there was primarily with a spinning rod. Uh, yeah. Of course, fantastic fishing. I mean, in every creek and, and lake on Iceland, you have you have trout, and quite often you have Arctic char. Um, but then, during my first year there, I met this Danish guy called Nils. Nils, he was working in Iceland as uh, uh, with a dairy factory. Okay. Uh, and he was up there to do the last bit of his studies, and then uh, doing a year there. And and we hit it off pretty good, and and. Nils, he was very keen into fly fishing. Uh, and he sort of got me converted like overnight. So uh, my spinning rod just went out the window. <laughs> I remember we went to Selfos, uh, to a little local tackle shop run by an elderly guy. Uh, oh, I can't remember his name. He was super sweet in Selfos. Yeah. Uh, I think it was called the Fishing cor- Corner or something. Hurtnit or something. I can't remember. Yeah. Uh, but I bought a Loomis, uh, a G Loomis. Uh, I think it was like a beginner's kit. Uh-huh. Uh, took me about three months. Then I bought a really expensive Loomis because it has to be, <laughs> be <Yeah>. better. <laughs> and it just went on from there. And I bought my first loop reel, uh, an Evotech. And we, we fished a lot. And so now we are talking, we're talking 2000, 2001. Right. Okay. Uh, and we started exploring pretty much everything we could on the southern part of Iceland. Uh, we did a lot of fishing in Lake Thingvellir, uh, which is pretty famous nowadays for, for the big trout net. But back then, I mean, you're not even allowed to fish the areas where, where most of the, the guided fishing is done today in the lake, yeah, where yeah. you have these hot, hot springs coming out into the lake. So we were mainly fishing in the nor- uh, northern end of the lake. Uh, but even back then, we had good fishing. I mean, it's not as extreme as it is where you have these warm water outlets. Uh, but it was still good. I mean, we were catching a lot of trout between one and two kilos. And eventually, now and then, you would catch a three kilo. Yeah. Uh, 
but we also have some it was amazing archer char fishing they were not huge say, yeah yeah they have di- four different species in in the lake of archer char which is super interesting by itself uh, one species has the same lip and upper mouth as a, as a grayling okay uh, because they're primarily feeding on snails um, so I did a lot of fishing in that lake, uh, and I even wrote my first fishing article for Danish magazine uh, from that lake. And th- this was and well then, before it was was really famous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I suppose people fished there. The Icelanders themselves did it, but I, I can't remember ever ever meeting a foreigner when no. I was there. Uh, and it's fantastic. I mean, it's 82 square kilometers big. Uh, average depth, what, 33 meters. Yeah. Uh, so it's huge. And it, it used to be commercialized fish as well because they would, they would catch these small, one of the species, they don't grow very big. So they're size-wise a little, a little smaller than herring. Right. So okay. they, they would actually commercialize fish them in the lake. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's what the big trouts are, of course, feeding on. So, But nowadays there's no commercialized fishing. No, no. Um, so of course me and Nils we exploited that and we went to a lot of these places that today are super hyped but back then there was they weren't hyped the fishing was super cheap I mean if we were back then buying an expensive lake license what we're, we're talking maybe 10 15 euros that was the price tag back then right right um, did some fishing in the highlands and I was really cool even, even like got an, to try it sounds like an amazing playground for somebody that's just started fly fishing anyway uh, it was and and I mean you most people won't even believe it but I mean I, I would I would find a small creek for example uh, and and I remember one creek I found I'm not going to tell it by name uh, people <laughs> have to go out and explore yeah. it themselves but I found this creek it went under the road so it, it was just by the road of course and right and I walked just a couple of hundred meters by it, and I saw it was quite deep at places, so it looked like it was actually a crack in the ground, mm-hmm. which which is not uncommon in Iceland due to the uh, the land masses meeting there. Yeah. Uh, and I just went up and I asked the farmer, is it okay to fish here? And he was like, yeah, of course, uh, go ahead. So, I mean, even some of the fishing were free, and, and <laughs> I started fishing this creek just with a single-hand rod, and, you know, most of the time you're only casting maybe two, three, four rod lengths of, of line. Yeah. Uh, but I was catching sea trout, sea run arctic char, uh, amazing stationary arctic char and brown trout in this little little creek just by the road where nobody that I've seen ever fished in. Yeah. Uh, so it was a fantastic playground, and and that's also where the thoughts of of working with fishing started for me because I had I had good friends and family who, especially my dad, he he always wanted to come up and and visit me. Yeah. Uh, during the summers and. And then he was like, "Well, I got a couple of friends who wants friends who wants to follow. Could you, could you put something together for for the four or five of us?" Yeah. So I started doing these, yeah, if you want packages, uh, where we would go and, and then fish for a week's time or so. Yeah. And then I sort of discovered, well, it's not half bad taking people out fishing. No. <laughs> um, so this must have been in like October two thousand and three. Uh, I got help from from a friend uh, I got to know in Iceland, a girl from Sweden, and she was like, "Well, in Sweden we got like two or three serious fishing guide educations, if if it's interesting." Mm-hmm. Uh, and we looked it up, and we found one that was after high school. So the others they were like in Scandinavia, we call it gymnasium. Right. Uh, that, that's high school, right? So, but I already did that in Denmark. So 
we found this one where it was sort of a level after uh, and I applied for it and quite quickly I got an, a positive answer but then all of the stuff regarding finance started because schools in Scandinavia are most of the time uh, m most of the costs are covered but in my case I also needed to be able to live so I had to pay for a small apartment and I, of course I needed to eat um, and and being Danish, wanted, wanting to study in Sweden, I couldn't get the normal student support right. from Sweden because I was from Denmark. Yeah, but I couldn't get the Danish one either because I was going to study in Sweden. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, eventually, I had to go to the bank and actually get a loan so I could, uh, yeah, so so I could live for a year in Sweden while while taking the, this education, and uh, since my my repertoire since earlier days i could not get that loan without my dad uh, <laughs> being, <laughs> being the the man on the paper but yeah. he helped me out with the loan and the finances and uh, i moved to sweden in january 2004 up to lapland and then uh, just to give everybody a clearer picture this is uh, uh, roughly um what is it 30 kilometers south of the pol polar circle Right, okay. 25, 30 kilometers south. Uh, and the, the place is called Övertornia. Gotcha. Right on the border to Finland. So across the river, that would be Finland. And we would just be uh, below the Arctic Circle. So when I arrived in January 2004, I've seen winters in Iceland, like, and a couple of times in Denmark, I've seen snow. Mm -hmm. But in Iceland, it could be relatively cold and, and icy. But I remember pulling in. I came with a bus. I mean, you have to imagine, I jumped on... I went from Iceland back to Denmark, spent a month or so in Denmark, and then I took the train from Denmark uh, through all of Sweden all the way up to Luleå, <laughs> which took, uh, I think, like 24, 26 hours. Yeah, I was going to say that. So it's a mighty journey. Yeah, it, it was. And then uh, jumped on a bus. That bus took me for, I don't know, five, six-hour mm -hmm. ride. Yeah. Uh, before I was in Urbatonia, uh, late afternoon, early evening. And when I stepped out that bus, everything was covered in snow. And we're not like talking a foot. We're talking like four, five, six feet of snow. Yeah. And I think it was like minus 28 degrees Celsius. <laughs> so nearly twice as much in, in your own freezer. Yeah. And I was just blown away. This was so, it was such a contrast. It was so weird. Yeah. Um, and I had all my gear, big backpack. Uh, I had a pair of skis, never used skis before, but I had to buy them before school. Uh, I had my fishing rods in, in, in the tubes and I, I I walked down to the school who was luckily for me quite close to the to the bus station and and then my adventure at the school started, which to date is still one of my absolute best years. Yeah. Uh, of course good things have happened before and after, but it was just such a such a year full of experience. I mean I got to win winter camp in tent uh, for a week with with the class I was with. And just a thing like boiling water in minus 20, 28 degrees. Yeah, exactly. You sort of realize that's going to take you 45 minutes to get a cup of coffee. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we did all of this, these amazing things on that year. Uh, and, and Sweden are really, I mean, people who are studying in Sweden are super lucky because they can they can go to high school with different themes. So you'll, you'll read whatever you need to read, like mathematics, English, Swedish, whatever. Yeah. But you can also have a theme. So if, if you want to work as a fishing guide, you can actually read the, the normal stuff you need to read while getting an, an education as a fishing guide. Yeah. 
while you can get that stuff in Denmark, for example. Uh, but an amazing year, and I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but during the year we went to, to this school, uh, we had to do a traineeship. Uh, and and honestly, I had no idea what to, to go for. Yeah. Uh, I, I'd fished in Iceland, of course, like I said, and, and in Denmark before, but I really didn't know what to choose. So I got some help from some of my classmates, and and one of them, Anders, he, he recommended Saxness in that sort of in the mid Lapland area yeah, in Sweden, yeah. or, uh, quite close to the Norwegian border, where they focus on trout and Arctic char. Yeah. Uh, and I went down there, uh, was supposed to be there, had an internship for, a traineeship for, I think, like four weeks. Okay, yeah. Uh, but I think I was there most of the summer, all, all my available time. I didn't go yeah. home to Denmark on vacation <laughs> or anything. I just no. stayed there. And it was such a good experience. Uh, I mean, I was on the river every day. I did not miss a day on the river. No. Even if I've been out with, with guests, sometimes you would do it as a trainee, but as my trainee period came to an end, I would actually go out working then. Yeah. Uh, for Matsu owned the company back then. And, uh, and even after 10, 12, 14 hours working days, I would still go out and fish on my own. Uh, you know, I, I had started such a longing just for learning more. And yeah. And after I finished the season, I can't remember if it was the first or second. It must have been the second year I was there. Uh, I remember that Matt, he got an email for some, from something called the European Fly Fishing Association. No, that's not true. That was afterwards. Back then, it was actually called the Fly Fishing Federation of Europe. Right. The way. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that uh, they wanted to educate the first or certify the first instructors in Sweden back then. Yeah. Because uh, no instructors, there was no certified instructors in Sweden back then in 2004 or five. And uh, he offered me and two co-workers, uh, Jacob and Johan, uh, to, if he, he would pay the fees, if we would try and see if we could succeed. And, and I think he was guessing that, well, if one of us succeeds, it's, it's worth the money. Yeah. Because certainly. then we have a certified guide and instructor. Yeah. What he didn't count on what, was that all three of us would succeed. Uh, so together with, uh, with Stefan Sikavara, we were the first four in Sweden to get certified as uh, casting instructors. Awesome. So this, what year was this? It must have been 2005. Okay. Uh, yeah, I think it was 2005. Uh, and then during the autumn of 2005, after I left Saxness, uh, came home, I, I, yeah, I totally forgot. This is embarrassing. I met my future wife, 2000, 2004, <laughs> at the education. Yeah. She, she was studying to, as a nature guide, uh, Evelina. Yes. And Evelina and I, I still, ha- still had our base then in, in Torne Valley, where we still live today. Yeah. Which is the river valley next to Torne River. Yeah. Uh, so... At, in the autumn of 2005, I went uh, uh, back to the Tone Valley and Evelyn had a meeting in the spring with a guy called Björn. He owns a place called Schengisbruk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and I went with her just because I wanted to see this Schengisbruk. I'd never been there before. Yeah. And uh, uh, they had a job interview with Evelina. She was going to run uh, like a summer cafe. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she was going to run... Uh, a little staff of three three people plus herself, and, and they were going to have this summer cafe next to the river. Yeah. 
And and when she was in the interview, I, I had a, a stroll by the river and it just looked amazing. Mm-hmm. It's the biggest rapid in the system. So it drops like 19.5 meters over a stretch of 600 meters. Yeah. Uh, and I just saw super potential. <laughs> uh, not not just for salmon, because I was not a salmon fisherman back then. Yeah. Um, but just, it looked amazing for trout and grayling fishing. Yeah. Uh, so after Dave had their meeting, I went up to Bjorn and I spoke to him and I asked him, maybe you should develop the fishing here and then employ me. Uh, and we decided, yes, that could be a good idea. So <laughs> already 2006, I started working with Chengis. Yeah. But it's so far away from what it is today. I mean, when we started, there was two cabins by the riverside that we could rent out to clients. The salmon fishing back then was nearly catastrophical bad. Yeah, uh, yeah. We would catch some once in a while, but it wasn't good. Uh, so a lot of the focus was on grayling and trout. Yeah. But with the chance of a salmon and then a chance of a big salmon if you hook them, because they are big here. Yeah. Uh, but it was it was nothing like what it was what it is today. I mean, we had mainly national clients, uh, so Swedes. Uh, but during the years when I I was first employed by Bjorn, and then I had I started my own company, and then. I would do the job for him as a more like consult, 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 help me out here. Consultant. <laughs> consultant basis, yeah. 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 Um, and then uh, I kept going. Um, during that time, I, I worked for with the fishing in Chengis during the summer times. Uh, I think it was 2007 and eight. I even took the, the autumn in, in River Tweed. So I would then work okay. in Sweden with, with fishing from June to August, yeah. Uh, fly to to Scotland uh, in September. Work September November on the Tweed, and then already from two thousand four uh, and seven years ahead during the winter time, I would do snowmobile guiding in Finland. Right, gotcha. In, fin- in Finnish Lapland. So a full season of activities. Yeah. So yeah. and and the whole goal was there was two goals. One get a get, get a full year's pay. I mean, make yeah. sure you have work enough to actually get a, but also to, to collect as much service knowledge as possible because being a guide means obtaining service. Yeah. Uh, so, so I wanted to, to get as many guiding hours as possible because even though you, you might not always have as many working on changes in the summer, all that, uh, extra exposure during the winter of handling people and uh, being out with them in the outdoors and all that. That's experience that you want. Yeah. Uh, so I worked really hard to try and try and collect as much experience as I could. And uh, after Tweed, uh, what did I do? Uh, me and my wife also started a company uh, called Vilmax Mecca. But, but uh, before you did that, where were you actually working on the Tweed? Uh, lower North Walk and South Walk. Okay. I was working for Miss Jennifer Lovett. Right. Um, so I was actually based in England. Uh, and uh, when, we, when we were working on Lower North Walk, we were in Scotland. When we were working on uh, South Walk, we were in England. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And uh, did you do this with, uh, with Evelina as well? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Evelyn went with me uh, at least the first year. Yeah. Uh, so, so she she helped out at the local uh, uh, hotel. I can't remember the name. Okay. Salutation Inn or something maybe. Uh, Possibly. In cold, in, yeah, in Coldstream, I think it was. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, we we did we did a year there together. Okay. Super nice. It was like the best autumn in years in the UK. Yeah. So I think I, I was working. 50% of my days until the end of October in t-shirt. Remind and me of fishing. the year again? I think it was 2006 and seven or seven and eight. I can't remember. Uh, I'm just but, trying to remember in the timeline of fishing that I did when I was a kid. I think we had one really amazing year across all of the Scottish and English rivers. It, it was just nuts. Like a normal week for us on the Deveron would be, would be a handful of fish and we had you know, bumper loads of fish that year. I'm not sure if it was then or not, though. It could have been because we had a really good season. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember what, what the total... We were five gillies handling mm-hmm. six rods, uh, daily rods, and I landed... The rods I was fishing with, I landed 106 or 108 salmon wow. during that three-month period. That's awesome. Yeah, that's great. Uh, and I think Colin, my co-worker, he just... He had a few more than me. Uh, Robert, who was our head ghillie, had about the same as me. Yeah. And then we had Alan and Willie, uh, who had a little bit less in numbers. But, I mean, all in all, it, we, we must have touched at least 500 that, yeah. that autumn season uh, at those two beats. Um, so it was really good, and it was super good for me. I mean, the reason why I applied, uh, I applied to the Tweet Foundation because, I again, I wanted a longer season. Yeah. Uh, I thought that the, the three-month season we have in Sweden was not enough to get the experience I wanted. Yeah. So I applied to the Tweet Foundation, just wrote an open letter. Hi, uh, I'm an educated guide from Sweden. I'm applying for any type of guide job on the River Tweet. And Miss Jennifer Lovett then contacted me and, and asked me if, if I would like to come over for a test run. And then I did two weeks. And after that, I was told, you can stay. We're happy about what, what you do. And then I, then I stayed. But the cool thing for me was that I mean, I, I started getting interested in salmon in 2006 after being at Chingis yeah, uh, that, yeah. that first time. And what I really wanted to was to get more knowledge about salmon fishing. And I, and I thought, well, if I want to know sort of the beginning of it, I need to go to the UK because yeah, yeah. that is pretty much where it started, commercially yeah. anyway. Uh, and it was so cool. I, I remember going into the hotel in, in Kelso, seeing all the old pictures, all the mm-hmm. old gear, uh, and I mean, there's there's so much history when it comes to salmon fishing yeah. in the Kelso area. There's um, just uh, there's an awe about it, isn't there? There's there's yeah. something about the salmon fishing in the UK that's just it's unavoidably cool. It is. I mean, at times I might say that the UK fishing UK fishing is a little bit controversial. It doesn't move as fast forward maybe as as other countries, but the history is fantastic. Yeah. I mean, for what, a hundred and some, maybe 60 years or something, people have done this and there's, the history is well documented. Yeah. And maybe I mean, it's because of that history that things are a little bit slower because, you know, oh, the f- fishing has been great there for, for so, so long. And maybe we've started to see a real serious decline about the time that you were there, I would say, or a bit before. Um, yeah. Obviously, it's been having a bit of a decline for decades, but certainly since I was going as a young child, being quite good and it dropping off. You know, the, the Deveron has really suffered in uh, in the last few years. 
um, yeah. and it's it's sort of un- and the Tay as well. I, I didn't fish the Tay for the first time until about four years ago, and then I kind of understood the difference of how it was. But you know, I kind of see it in Sweden as the reverse. What you're saying with Schengis, it started off not being that great, so you would expect that the anglers going to fish there would have to have to innovate a bit and um, and find them. Yeah, and I, I mean. That's one of the things I'm so glad I got to experience. Yeah. I mean, the fishing might turn really bad here in 10 years. I mean, I can't postpone the future. I, There's I no way of knowing. No. But I got to fish here when it was really, really rough. And yeah. Especially from 2007, I got, I, was, I got extremely hooked on it. I left all other types of fishing alone, pretty much. Yeah. I only focused on salmon from then. Well, see, I didn't even know that you you were into the trout or the char and that sort of thing at all the first time that I met you. And you you picked up one of my single hand rods that I had for a laugh and I saw you casting a single hand rod. And I was like, whoa, okay, (laughs) this guy can really, really cast. He knows his stuff. And uh, yeah, then we started talking about the the trout fishing that you'd been doing before in in Sweden and Iceland. Yeah, and I mean... (sighs) Everybody who's who's done a lot of single hand fishing can quite easily jump over to the double hand fishing. I, I, I'm I'm pretty sure that if you start if you understand line control and 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 even how to move a rod, pretty decent. It, it's much easier to jump over to the double hand fishing. Yeah. Uh, and 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 it was the same for me. I had a lot of help, of course. I mean, first it was Niels in Iceland who helped me out with the basics. Yeah, uh, but then I just I spent so much time on it. Uh, I know a lot of people say they spend a lot of time, but I spent all my time. <laughs> I mean, it was before work, it was after work, and I still yeah. do it today. All the time I can spend fishing, I'll I'll try and spend it fishing. Yeah, uh, it was worse when I was younger and single, of course. Yeah, <laughs> but but, but I, I'm I'm still today really really interested in, in the fishing. I'm maybe a little bit more calm about it nowadays. Yeah. But but I now I'll still give it give it my go, uh, and I mean, uh, yeah, uh, just to pick up. So it was really it was really really cool being in in, in England and Scotland to see the, the history, yeah. and I think it's an important part of the history to know where everything comes from. Then it's fantastic to see how other countries have developed. I mean, Scandinavia has been in the forefront for years. Yeah when it comes to salmon fishing and, and tackle. Um, I mean, I fell in love with loop already back in Iceland yeah. after I received my first, my first reel, the, the first generation of Evertex. And mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not lying. It was on my bedside table. Yeah. I mean, I, that would, it would be the first thing I actually looked at every morning. <laughs> I, I would just turn it, you know, twice or, <laughs> just to hear that taking. I mean, I thought that was a fantastic brand already back then. And yeah, yeah. the stuff that Kurt, Kurt Donaldson and, and Krista did together with those reels is just amazing. Uh, well, you know, I still have memories of Trout and Salmon magazine back covers with the first time the Opti came out and I was still a kid. You know, we had lots of these old issues of Trout and Salmon and new ones in the huts in Scotland. And the first, I remember seeing the Opti the first time and thinking it was just, it was just mad, you know. It was such a it cool like, design. Exactly, it was sort of a new generation of of large arbor reels. Yeah. So no, super cool. Yeah, and I suppose that brings us into yeah when I when I was eight nine well two thousand nine anyway I, I 
I started working with Loop. Uh, so that's what's that now? Eleven years ago. So. Yeah. So how did that come about? Uh, can't really remember exactly, but uh, after after I got got the certification as a, a casting instructor. Yeah. Uh, I got contacted by a Danish company called Fairpoint. And Fairpoint back then, they were the grass company for Hardy's. Uh, what was it? Hardy's, Rio, Sage. No, Hardy's, Rio, Sims. Uh, and some other brands. Yeah. So, so that was sort of my first sponsor contract. And it was before... I mean, you had Instagram sponsoring and all yeah, of yeah. that. I mean, yeah. and I've always been pretty keen when it comes to co-ops that, I mean, if you if you work with a brand and, and they decide to sponsor you, I read an article many years ago about sponsoring and, and it just in some way it got stuck with me that if a company sponsors you with gear, you should deliver threefold of communication. Yeah. So if there's a certain value to the gear you've gotten, then try and give them back threefold in 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 communication, whether it's yeah. articles, TV. So so I always sort of wanted to to make sure I I delivered, uh, um, and so I started working with Fairpoint. Didn't do that for much more than a year uh, because I was I was offered they wanted to take it to the next level, level so they were offering me a sales job where I would sort of uh, work work with sales for Northern, Scan- uh, Northern Scandinavia, Northern Sweden, I can't even remember, but I was not interesting at all. I didn't want to be a sales rep for a company. No. Uh, so, so I declined that, and then I got contacted by a guy called Patrick, who have started a small Swedish brand called Sameo. Uh, okay, yeah, it? yeah. I remember yeah. saying the, we still have some of their fly tying bits in, in the lodge in Schengis. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and then I started helping them out. And uh, uh, the thought was that we were going to design, well, we did, did design uh, some double hand rods, and, and, but quite, quite quickly also saw that it was a different market than what they were used to with the single hand rods. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're a small company, but they did. I mean, the rods were super nice and everything, uh, but the double hand was, was more tricky. Yeah. Uh, so I think I was I was with Samir and, and the guys for maybe a couple of years. Okay. And then I got contacted by Loop uh, and they asked me if I would like to join them. Uh, and Loop has always, I mean, they, they are the first brand beside Hardy I can remember, I remember, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Uh, it was just those fantastic reels and the whole color line concept. It's still so clear in my in my memory, yeah. the ads and yeah. everything they did. Uh, so I was super stoked when I got contacted by by Loop and and yeah, I've been with them ever since. In the yeah. beginning, it was more like a sponsor thing, and nowadays I, I help with with some some bits of product development and and stuff like that. But yeah. still, a fantastic brand today. But I mean, there's many good brands today. Uh, um, if you look at the industry by itself. Uh, I think the Scandinavian brands have done it extremely well. Yeah, uh, yeah. But it goes back to into- goes back to what we said, isn't it? It's that uh, I think there was a lot of innovation. It was almost mandatory to to have any kind of success in the harder waters that were were local. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. You know, I, I see a lot of great fly 
and fly fishing techniques innovations coming out of Denmark in the last 10 years. Quite surprisingly, a lot of stuff coming from there. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, if you go to, I mean, it's it's super fun when you start looking at different markets when it comes to the to the ta- tactics and, and gear being used. I mean, if you go by the, by the Swedish coastline, you'll see nine out of 10, they'll be using a weight forward line. Yeah. Uh, specifically then for coastal fishing, where as soon as you, you, you jump over to the other side of the sea to Denmark, you'll see 9 out of 10, they'll be using shooting heads and, and sh- thin monofilament shooting lines yeah. for their coastal fishing. And I mean, that's what I started with in Iceland as well. So I was fishing with shooting heads for, for the trout and archer chair and that, mm-hmm. simply because it was the most efficient tool. I mean, yeah. you often had strong head wind and stuff like that. You just wanted something to attack that wind with and just hammer out whatever nymph or, or bugger or whatever you wanted to deliver. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think having tried all of these different methods, when I came down to Saxness, it was all delicate dry line, uh, dry fly fishing and, and fine nymphing and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, and you add on all these different techniques and, and, and different tools to, to be able to, to, to do your techniques and, and fishing. And all of a sudden you're opening up new doors. And I mean, Skagit casting the last years has grown like immense, especially in, in, uh, north america but we even seeing it here yeah uh, yeah and, and a lot of the casting style that that sort of focused around skadid was already existing in northern sweden yes yeah uh, b- before i moved here like the perry poke uh, ha- had the name buske casted yeah uh, <laughs> uh, so so it just i mean it all makes sense i mean it's it's anglers fly fishermen and women who are out by the river trying out stuff yeah and and of course, they're trying out stuff on either side of the pond. Yeah, yeah. Um, what so, I've what I've always been really appreciative from from the help that you've given to me and and others as well, and just generally across Scandinavian anglers as a whole is there's a real practicality to your approach to fishing, in that it's you sort of have to do it to prove that it it does what it says on the tin. So, you know, things like skagit casting. If you talk about some talk about it in theory, you can kind of imagine it, but it's not until you actually put it into practice and you realize how effective and a tool it can be um, that you really start to understand it. And um, I, I just love that whole concept of do it and understand it and use it for its its specific method and application. And it's it's just another one of those brilliant tools to another string to the bow. I definitely. I mean, depending on on the situation nowadays, we the we have such a variety of different techniques and 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 tackle to use. Uh, so there's there's not really any excuse anymore. No. Uh, of course, it demands it demands a little bit more. If you want to be good at it all, you, you need to be be out there practicing and yeah and developing. There's also a cost factor involved. I can understand why ah, people wouldn't want to have loads and loads of lines because they, you know, Ex- they all carry a, a hefty price point. Of course um, they do, and and I mean, but that's also uh, <laughs> some days I get frustrated because you know when when talking when we're talking product development or we're talking privately between uh, friends, uh, but over a generation line. Yeah, I mean, I'm used to cutting my own heads. I'm used to melting my own loops on, on my head. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, 
I'm used to customizing it to my needs. Uh, where today it has to be easy peasy and a quick fix. Yeah. Where, where I think a lot of anglers, if they would take the time to actually get to know their gear proper, they yeah. would also get the best out of it. I agree. But I, I think there's also, um, there's a responsibility from uh, brands and brand ambassadors that the communication needs needs to be really good. And we're, I've had this conversation with almost every brand out there and they all agree that sometimes you can get caught up in having so many different products on the line. The line actually gets blurred between them what they're supposed to do and how you're supposed to maximize the potential of each one for your own needs. So in that respect, Loop actually were were fantastic at doing that in the beginning, as were Guideline with um, when it comes to actually cutting down heads. Yeah, yeah. And making them to what, what you need to be. Uh, but I think we can just, we can go so much further on that because... You know, co- coming from coming from myself, when I started using shooting heads for the first time, maybe about five or six years ago, I wouldn't know where to begin when it comes to actually cutting lines from the the rear to the front section to actually get the best out of those. So I can understand why people uh, why people struggle with that. Definitely, and I mean, you're paying whatever you're paying for a fly line it, it, and maybe it doesn't feel right to go home and cut it with a scissor directly. Exactly, yeah. But, Start but, I mean, trimming what, up a £90 line, it's difficult to do. Exactly, but I mean, when I started, and I mean, I'm not that old. It's not like I'm the first generation of fly fishers with, with modern gear because I'm, I'm far from that. Yeah. But but I mean, we had the, the loop adapted and the guideline power tapers and all of that. Who are customized lines? I mean, you were supposed to cut them. But I mean, we would go out to the river and... and we would just peel off the coating, tie a loop on, tie it into our shooting line and cast it. And it was like, ah, oh, it's too heavy. Then you would cut off half a meter, retie a loop, cast it again. Now it still needs a bit more. And you would do that until you, you're happy. Yeah. And if you then saw that, well, now I'm nearly there, but it can't really turn over my fly and I want this 15-foot tapered leader. Uh, and this is about the average size of fly. You would cut it in the front as well. Yeah. A little bit less than, so, so you get a little bit, shorter front taper and and all of a sudden you, you would you would have something you really like you never measured the length and we never measured the weight we would do it just on feel just it's, by feeling yeah yeah so later on i mean just to cut corners i started putting them on weights and and even measuring them by length yeah sometimes for consistency I, I can feel, yeah and sometimes i think that length is more important uh, than, than the actual weight but it depends yeah. on the situation and what I'm going to use it for of course yeah I mean the rivers that we fish especially at Shengus we have the the opportunity to use really long long heads and lines if we want to but you know there's a couple of situations along there where we're forced right up against a, a cliff face and that long head suddenly is um, is exactly the wrong thing that you want to have exactly so no but there's I would recommend it to everybody who has to interest in it to actually try and, and fill around i mean take your old shooting heads that you don't really like because you got better ones instead of selling them at a extremely low rate on on the used market cut it up try and melt it together with something else i mean fiddle around with it get to know your gear proper so if you were to start to do that would you always start with the rear taper uh, well that's that's yeah most commonly yeah sure yeah i mean let's say you have Let's say you have a 13-foot rod, 8-9 uh, weight, and, and normally you, you would prefer uh, 30 grams on that one. 
if yeah. that's the case. And then you have an old shooting head uh, for a 910 rod at weighing in at 34 grams. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you have a better line for that rod nowadays, so the other line is just laying around. Well, then try and cut it. See how it behaves. Cut it down to 30 from, from the rear taper. See if it's something you can use if you have that clip behind your back. All of a sudden, you you created a, a short shooting head uh, that might just be the right thing in certain situations. Yeah. But I've, I've even gone, I mean, I made my own versatile lines just for trying it out to see if it was actually possible. So I would take a, a floating shoot, uh, shooting head. I would cut off most of the front taper to a place where the diameter with the, with the tippets I would want to try and put on would actually match up. I would then make a loop, melted loop, and even that would work. I'm not saying it's the perfect uh, <laughs> perfect choice all the time. No. But, but I mean, by doing that, you, you get to learn about how tapers work and and how the the what do you call it the placement of weight on the line? Uh, yeah. So so in my case, I mean, for most of the lines I'm fishing with, I want a lot of line weight in the rear part of the taper, so yeah. as close to to my rod section as possible. Gotcha. Uh, but I I I like the old like triangle taper if you want, mm-hmm. um, because I think they have a smooth uh, turnover. Uh, yeah. which, which often leads to longer presentations. Uh, but I mean, if you're in a situation where it's super tight, you might need something just more aggressive and shorter. Uh, and that's what we're seeing, for example, from Denmark. Yeah, using these certainly. extremely short variants. And and it works. I mean, it, it fills the purpose for the situation. Yeah. And it, well, just specifically for Denmark, for them, it's... Uh, is it, I haven't researched all of the rivers in Denmark like I usually would obsessively about other destinations but it seems like it's a lot of these uh, these smaller smaller deeper rivers with a lot of bank obstructions so it's a lot of bank fishing um, yeah and then so, you have like undercut banks so a yeah. lot of the fish will actually be underneath the bank exactly yeah uh, so so you need to sort of you need to get the flying all the way to the other bank and then it needs to sink super fast because yeah. the, the waters in Denmark are quite murky. Yes, yeah. Uh, so you want to get it down, and you're maybe fishing over two, three meters of water. So you want it to, you, you cast maybe 90 degrees, depending on style, but 90 degrees, close to the far bank, heavy fly, heavy tip, taking two, three, four steps downstream, and then letting it swing around. Yeah. Uh, and that works quite a lot. Uh, not saying it's the only thing, because there is also people who can catch them on, on floating lines, but... Whether that's the more efficient way or, or the other variant is, uh, I'll let the let the guys who are who are dealing with that type of fishing decide. But yeah, uh, it's all dependent on the situation, like you say, isn't it? But the point is, the more that you can educate yourself on your gear and effectively using that gear with good techniques, the more chances you have of actually having success finding the fish. Yeah, and then it helps fishing in a river where there is fish. That too. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going back to Shengis when you first started there's not so many fish but over the last half decade to decade we've we've seen a real increase in the numbers there yeah i mean the the difference is is just so huge i mean it's again i'm really really happy i've seen the tough years because uh, <laughs> i mean when, when you're fishing rivers where there's less fish 
you you need to be creative you need to spend long days many hours long seasons which have done that once the fish arrive in bigger numbers you're pretty well prepared you know yeah. your pools you know your rivers so i mean i was extremely well prepared and i got a lot of help i mean it's nothing i've figured out just on my own no um, i got some really good friends who were born in this area um, like christian stritzman yeah he, he taught me everything in basic double hand fishing when i started with that in 2005 six yeah and he guided me to my first salmon baltic salmon anyway so i mean i'm, I'm super stoked that i got to to see those years but after 2012 when when we the eu parliament decided to to lower the quota for for the baltic salmon fished at sea including uh, banning drift nets at at the baltic sea yeah and already the year after we saw a, a big in uh, incline in, in numbers of returning yeah. spawners so we went from an average of maybe 15 to 18,000 salmon a year to uh, i think the first year we had like 48,000 yeah um, yeah so like yeah three three to four times up nearly um and now we've been steady. I think we have an average of 65,000 returning spawners a year, but the best year we had 104,000 in 2014. Yeah. Uh, and, and of course, this is, it's extreme numbers, but you also have to realize we are the biggest river system in Europe as far as, as I know. Uh, yeah, yeah. The largest free-flowing river system in Europe. Yeah. And I think, uh, yeah, just within heart of Lapland, the geographical area where I work nowadays, uh, I think we have 1,850 kilometers of Salmon River. Yeah, <laughs> of which the Tawny River and its tributaries takes up a substantial number of that. Exactly. Yeah. So when we're talking about, you know, like an average of fifteen to 18,000 on any rivers at home here in the UK, that would be would be fantastic for most. Um, but when you're talking about it on a system like that, it really comes down to more like finding needles in a haystack. It does. I mean, I've been lucky enough to catch, since I started fishing for salmon, I've been lucky enough to catch salmon every year except 2008. Yeah. I couldn't get one up. I think I lost one. That was all that season. Right. Uh, but again, I, I'm extremely happy I got to, to try those tough years because it was a good lesson learned. Uh, and I mean, honestly, I mean, these rivers are not not the right ones if you want numbers. No. I mean, if, if you're looking to catch as many salmon as possible, I, I would recommend Russia and Iceland. Yeah. Uh, or Grills rivers in Norway, mm -hmm. because you'll get more numbers there. But if you're targeting big fish, uh, I would say our rivers in the north are one of the safer bets nowadays. Yeah, it yeah. certainly seems to be. I mean, we, we've had this discussion a few times that, um, you know, there's there's a group of, there's a large group of anglers in the, the area and people that travel from, uh, from internationally to come and fish there. And the age range, we've discussed that if you were to look at a group of people up to the age of 40, they've most likely had what we would perceive as a fish of a lifetime, anything over 20 pounds a lot of them have had fish over 30 pounds and not not just like one they've had a, a handful of them or more and a couple have even been lucky enough to have fish over 40 
Um, and of course, we're talking about people that are, they're not necessarily fishing for just one week and that's their week holiday fishing. There's the opportunity to fish in Sweden throughout the summer is fantastic and, and not that expensive if you know where to look. Um, but just the fact that that's actually possible, that we're talking people can have a really good opportunity <coughs> of catching their fish of a lifetime it's just remarkable. I, I fully agree. And I mean, as soon as we saw the numbers increasing in our rivers from 13 and forward, I mean, I just, I, and I saw my own catch statistics, not only were I, was I all of a sudden catching quite a lot more fish, but the average size and, and the biggest ones <laughs> grew really, really fast. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, and I won't say an average year, but I can't remember exactly. But I would say that since the fishing became better, so from 2013, I don't think I've had a season where I haven't caught a salmon over 110 centimeters. Yeah. Fresh fish. <laughs> so, so not so not an August fish, but um, I mean... And we're talking, for, you know, when we're in the category of 110 centimeters, that would comfortably be over 25 pounds in any condition and some yeah. of them sort of in that 30 region yeah. early 30s a good conditioned fish that's that's absolutely rem remarkable i mean to put it into put it into perspective for myself i fished in scotland all through my childhood and the biggest fish i ever saw personally was a 20 pound fish that i caught myself and i know others that caught fish in the high teens and the early 20s my first day in um, in Lapland fishing at York Fall, I saw three fish over 30 pounds caught in the home pool below the rapids, uh, below the waterfall. Um, and I was getting messages from you <laughs> daily <laughs> about fish. Either you or people in your in your fishing party were catching fish in the 20s and 30s as well. And that was also the year that... Um, Christian had his uh, had his 128 centimeter fish. Yeah, that but, was just sick. That yeah. was just sick. I mean, he called me up. Uh, yeah, at that time, Evelyn and I had started the shop in Pyla. Yes, yeah. the, the outdoor shop. This was 2015. Uh, wasn't it 16? Uh, 15. All right. Yeah, uh, you probably you're probably right. No, but anyway, he called me up and he said, "Oh, you gotta come. You gotta come." And it, Eric and Christian were fishing in Chengis. Yeah. We had to beat uh, for three days, uh, but I had to work daytime. So I was fishing mornings and evenings. Yeah. I was like, yeah, you have to come now. I, I, I hooked an amazing fish. Uh, I was like, all right, I'll, I'll close up the shop for an hour and I'll come by. It only takes like 10 minutes to drive down there anyway. Yeah. So, so I drove down and they had it in the net and uh, Christian, he was, he was so stoked. Eric as well. And it's 124, it's 124 centimeters. <laughs> and I mean, my, my dream fish, fresh fish caught on fly has always been 120 centimeters or more than yeah. it's, I mean, that, that's one of a lifetime if, if you ask me. Yeah. In, uh, in the, in the Swedish books. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, and now we're talking 124 yeah uh, but 128 after, yeah but we thought it was 124 they, they oh, measured okay. it yeah yeah they <laughs> measured it uh, 
but eventually we tried. I, I, I kept the shop closed for, for much longer. We actually, we tried for, for, if it was just under an hour or nearly an hour, uh, to revive it, yeah. to, to release it. But the problem was that it was deeply uh, gill-hooked. Yeah. And in, in the end, it, it was sort of, it was dead. We, Christian didn't even have to knock it on its head. Yeah. Uh, which was, was what it was, I mean. So, so we, we brought it up and put it in the grass. And, and then I, I said, well, we might as well just control measure it now because now it's, it's calm circumstances. The fish is already dead. Yeah. Just, just to see. And uh, we controlled measured it three times at 128. Yeah. Uh, and put it in. Uh, we waited later on, six hours later. And then he already bled it out, or most of it bled out early mm-hmm. because of the gill hook. But uh, and we waited in uh, on two different uh, scales at nineteen point eight and nineteen point nine kilos. Yeah. So it would probably have passed a 20, 20 kilo if we waited in straight away. But, yeah, exactly. But a fantastic fish and a fish of lifetime. Unfortunately, it, it didn't survive this time, but. But that's that's also a, a deal with this game that sometimes they will be be badly hooked and we'll have to we'll have to take our responsibilities as as fishermen as, as well. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, we we both remember very clearly the um, the fish that uh, was quite badly hooked when Hooke were with us in the year after in 2016. Yeah, um, that's right. Yeah. And that, like you said before, it was a bit of a moment for them, I think, because they obviously coming from Canada. The keeping of fish from the rivers that they're in is is a no go at all, um, but you managed to make a nice story out of it. Yeah, and I think it's important. I mean, fishing has to be. I mean, we, we want to make it long term. All types of fishing. So, I mean, most of the fishing we do here is, of course, catch and release. But personally, if I hook a fish and I don't believe it's going to survive. Uh, I think it's a little bit disrespectful to just chuck it in and see yeah. it float away. Totally agree. Uh, I think it's better that you actually do something nice with it. Yeah. Uh, but but most of them will will of course it's catch and release and 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 that's good. I think that's one of the best ways we as anglers can actually take a responsibility on the river is to put most of our catches back. Yeah. And and do it as correctly as possible because. I mean, there's a lot of studies that shows that if you do proper catch and release, it's not an it's not an issue for most of the fish. They they'll make it exactly. fine. Yeah. Uh, so I think it's super important. There's a few simple rules, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You know, keep keep their uh, keep their protective slime in good condition. Keep them well oxygenated. It's as simple as that, really. Yeah, and give them time before you. Yeah, you just- exactly put them out in the main current again. I think though I was listening to another podcast recently where they were talking about this and they'd actually done a lot of research on it. And they were saying that uh, actually <clears throat> as long as you can keep the fish in any body of water, doesn't have to be in uh, nice running water. As long as it's in any body of water, the fish is able to um, get oxygen for its gills. So when yeah. it comes to catch and release, it's you know it's not uh, it's not a desperation to get them into the fast water. Just as long as you can keep them under, and not keep taking them out of the water for prolonged periods for for our Instagram and Facebook glory. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I mean it's it, to me it's just a no brainer. It's really easy to to lift up for a couple of seconds at a time and then send them on their way when they're ready. Yeah. Yeah. 
But uh, talking about Christian's big fish, what has always made me laugh about that story is that he followed it up with a pretty cracking fish not long after that, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, me, Christian, and Eric, we're pretty much like brothers when it comes to comes to fishing and that. We're, we're pretty tight. Uh, so the goal in life is to beat the others. <laughs> And, and then all of a sudden, Christian was leading. I, I, I used to lead that, that little league. I had a, a July fish caught in 2013 at 117 centimeters. Yeah. And then he comes up with this 128. And I mean, that's just ridiculous. What's the chance of me or Eric ever breaking that? Um, it's so far-fetched. It's still my, li- uh, my goal in life, <laughs> beside bringing up my, my kids to be reasonable human beings. Um, but... <laughs> Just a few hours later that day, he he, he hooks and lands a hundred and sixteen yep. centimeter male fish. Fantastic fish! Super oh, just deep. just amazing fish! Yeah. For anybody uh, that's had a look at our our press material before, that fish yeah, and the three that, yeah. of you are basically that. That's like our poster fish. It's absolutely amazing to look at. It is, and it's just ridiculous that he catches two fish like that and within 24 hours. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, there's not a whole lot of rivers in the world where you can do stuff no. like that. There is a few, but they can maybe be mentioned on a hand or two. Yeah. Um, but what it's, I, mean, that, I mean, it's so selfish. The guy completes salmon fishing in 24 hours, but he keeps fishing and he keeps catching more fish like it. <laughs> no, no, I think it's all good. But yeah. I mean, just, just a couple of, two years ago, we were fishing uh and and i fished the morning i landed a really really good fish i think um, was it 114 centimeters yeah. 113 114 centimeters and christian comes down and he's super stoked <laughs> uh, i had my family they came down with lunch yeah to the river so the kids were there and everything and i told him yeah just go out there and and, and i'll be in here uh, doing the sausages and and i i kid you not it took him like what five casts mm-hmm and I think it was a hundred and if it was a centimeter longer or shorter than the one I caught, and I mean it took him five casts. If, if memory serves me right, a hundred and fifteen centimeters. Yeah, I think like, so too. Yeah. Probably bigger, as yeah. usual. <laughs> uh, it seems to be his style. Yeah. Uh, but I'm gonna give him the benefit that he he was actually born and raised here. He's been drinking the yeah. water from the river since childhood. I mean, he was 15 when he caught his first 15 kilo salmon. Yeah. By himself, so yeah. So I'll give him that. He's he's earned it. Speaking of which, being a born and bred local boy, he obviously has had some tuition himself from uh, from other people along the way. You've told me the story before of another fantastic local angler, his grandfather. Yeah. Yes, Birje Stritzman is his name, or was his name. Birja died some years ago, uh, but Birja was a super keen salmon angler also, but not fly fishing. Up no. here, you have to realize it's big rivers, and the common way for, for the locals have have been to row wobblers or, or spoons behind the boat. Yeah. Uh, so so what we call salmon hauling. Uh, and Birja, he was, he was super talented at this stuff. Uh, and we were standing on the bridge in Kangas that goes over the liner river, uh, a day me and Christian, and all of a sudden we we see a boat slowly working its way to, to towards us, 
And Christian says, oh, that's, that's grandfather. Uh, and I was like, how many, how many rods is he fishing with? Uh, probably seven. <laughs> and, and sure enough, as he came down, he was one man in the boat with seven rods. I was like, how can he handle that? Seven rods? I mean, okay, if they were three guys, but one. Now, then it, then it turned out that he had a rod holder that he'd made himself, where he had like a fan with seven different tubes. Yeah. And they were all connected and welded together with an old handbrake handle. From a cock. So what he would, yeah. So yeah. what he would do is when, 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 a, when a salmon took a spoon or a bottle on one of the rods, he would strike on all seven by pulling <laughs> that handbrake really hard. Uh, and, and <laughs> I love that. Yeah, no, and but he was he was I mean he did what he was good at. Yeah. And and I mean to be fair, when when he started with this the the, the river and the salmon were in another situation, it was way more difficult to catch them. So I'm yeah. not surprised he was using salmon rods. Maximizing the opportunities. Exactly. Yeah. No, that's incredible. I mean the the guys that still do this in the Finnish rivers. Uh, sorry, on the Finnish side and the Swedish side below Schengis. Um I've always marveled at their ability to row these boats consistently throughout the day. It's a real skill in itself because it's not like how we have it here where you would typically use an engine and maybe four rods out the back. You've got a guy that is behind the oars the entire time and uh, their ability to actually find the fish is... Is amazing. Yeah, and you're not allowed to use an engine during fishing. You're allowed to use engine for transportation. Yeah. But during fishing, you can only row. Yeah. Um, and I mean, it doesn't inflict with our fly fishing either because we, no. we fish most of the time. It's different places. They'll fish this, the, the broader, slower water of the river. Yeah. Uh, where, where we with fly rods, we'll look for the little bit faster water and more narrow points. But yeah. that's just too hard water for them to row in. Um, so it works out quite fine. And, yeah. I tell you and what, then, it's it's not easy. You know, people would think uh, that they have the edge over the fly fishers, but you know, we, we've we've stay in good contact with a couple of the guys fishing down below with the boats, and um, they do pretty well. But I couldn't tell you that they do any better than us. No, I don't think so. If you start, I mean, counting hours spent on the river uh, per persona, yeah, I don't think it's more efficient. I don't think it's less efficient either. No. Uh, at certain times they'll catch much more than we will on a fly but sometimes it's also the other way around yeah but but the really cool thing with those guys below as well is that it's not just wobblers they're using when when i've fished with them before they also use the flies yeah yeah they'll row with with flies as well of course and that's pretty fun (laughs) it's difficult to get the get the line out when you've got just a fly on it but um, I mean, it's it's so uh, so focused as well. So a lot of the rods they're using have the the meter measurements on them. So it's you know staggering per fan rate. You know the outside one will maybe be doing twelve meters, and then the next one is at eighteen, and then the next one twenty four, and just yeah. constantly adjusting until they find the the right levels. So when you think about the level of work going into all of that with the number of rods that are being used, and then you've got us on the bank searching for them alone yeah it's it's you know the the stats speak for themselves yeah definitely um no where are we at now in this timeline period uh, i think we're at uh oh nine ten eleven twelve yeah 13, right yeah yeah was this All about right. the so, time you started with onka yeah i was just gonna say so 
before the salmon turned good, uh, me and my wife, Evelyn, we started a company, as I said, Vilmatchmaker. Yeah. But beside having the tackle shop, it was a tackle shop, outdoor and hunting shop in Payala. Uh, we also uh, started Camp Anka, uh, which was a private beat on the Lanyard River, approximately eight kilometers long. Uh, yeah. Where we made, we built up like, sort of like a glamping camp, if you want. Mm-hmm. Well, the the most well glamping sounds wrong, but but it was tents <laughs> yeah. with proper wooden floors and and, yeah. and proper like camping beds in them instead of just being a tent. Yeah, with arguably uh, one of the best views you could hope for for a salmon yeah. fisher. it's an amazing place. I mean, the cliff, the main cliff pool, the Onka pool, it has a drop yeah. of eight meters straight down into the main pool, so you're actually sitting on that cliff edge, yeah. overviewing everything. So it, it's amazing. And uh, yeah, and we ran that for, I think, five years. We had the company before we sold it. Yeah. Uh, and had some amazing things happen. I mean, not only did we grow in, in the numbers of fishermen, but also due to the work you and I did together, where we yeah. started marketing it towards UK and, and other international clients, we were growing the client base from being mainly from Sweden and Finland to being closer to 50-50 international and national yeah. clients, uh, which was amazing and a, a super cool cool try. And I mean, back then we were then handling. We had the shop then. Uh, we had Kambanka with one employee uh, with the fishing. And then we had also Schengis that we were still running. Yeah. Uh, so we had the two lodges and, and, and then the, the company. But we decided to sell in 2015. Um and the main reason for that was that uh, our daughter Björk, she got diabetes type yes. one. Yeah. So we felt that running a company that both of us was involved in, and uh, it took a lot of our time, of course, like yeah. everybody. Yeah. It's runs. a big adjustment. Yeah, it is. So, so we decided to uh, to to look for other other things to do where we could have a a more steady income because running your own business is always uncertain. Yeah. Uh, so then I started working for uh, Heart of Lapland, which is sort of a local destination office. So we work with, with the, we work for the tourism companies within our area. Yeah. Uh, and what we try to do is uh, product development with the newcomers, uh, but then also market development and business development, meaning that that we try to keep a tight dialogue between. Uh, two operators, incoming companies, uh, and our companies. So uh, yeah. at certain days, we're, we're like a dating agency. <laughs> yeah. So we're trying to find the right company for the right tour operator. Yeah. So we can create sales and actually get more tourists here. And uh, I've been lucky enough because of my history with the fishing. Uh, not only do I get to work with tourism in, in my own neighborhood, but I also get to work with fishing development within all of Swedish Lapland, which is a quarter of the country, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, and I've I've met some fantastic people throughout the years. Uh, I, I work a lot on the press side as well, uh, where I work together with Ted Logard and Håkan Stenlund. Yeah. Uh, we're a small but tight team. And I mean, we've had what we've had Hooky here for three years from Canada doing amazing stuff. Yeah. With with that whole crew, we had. Uh, Yvonne from Patagonia here. We had Scott McKenzie, Ian Fagreve, uh, 
Rene Gergen from Atlantic Travels Denmark. Uh, yeah. Oh, Nathaniel Riverhorse from uh, uh, the Flyfish Journal US. Uh, ah, there's so many I can't even remember them all, and I'm sorry if I didn't mention anyone who wanted <laughs> to mention. But but we've been so fortunate to bring to bring skilled people out here, and the reason we wanted to do this when it comes to PR is that we've always been an unknown destination. I mean, yeah. I know the struggles we had when we ran our own company, trying to persuade people to come to Sweden to fish for salmon when they can choose from uh, Russia, Canada, Iceland, Norway, the UK. It's really hard to convince people that, that it's worth a try. Absolutely. So, so we worked super hard with, with trying to get people who has has a voice, if you, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. So actually come here and, and, and try to show them what we can actually offer. Uh, and it's, it's worked really well. I mean, uh, our fishing is not for everyone, and it's not something we're going out saying either. And it's not for the ones who want to catch numbers. But if you want a realistic chance of hooking that, that fish of a lifetime, especially when it comes to salmon fishing, this is a pretty good bet. It certainly is. And Did thankfully, we've, we've been able to... We've been able to showcase that as well. I mean, Scott's first morning out or second morning out, he had a 32-pound fish in the island pool yeah, at for, Exactly, first morning. Yeah, and I remember you coming to wake me up because I slept right the way through it. <laughs> yeah, that's, that, that, that can happen if you're tired. Yes, yeah. Well, the thing is, I'd spent the week guiding before really, really hard. And it was one of those where we had perfect water, but the fish didn't just hadn't quite met up with us yet. Um, no, exactly. It was, it was a little later spring that year, yeah, or exactly. later summer, but because we're already into the summer. And that, but I mean, that's fishing. Oh, it Everybody is. Yeah. who's, who's yeah. done more than a couple of seasons salmon fishing knows that you can't rely on a certain week to, to be good year for year. No. Because seasons are changing. Sometimes the summer will be late, other times early. Yeah. And the third year still be normal. But but that, it, I mean, that's a part of the charm. It is. Uh, and I, I know a lot of people will will disagree with me for saying so. But I really cannot stand catch statistics when you start attributing it to uh, specific weeks of the year. Anybody that has a look at any beat on Fishpal, for example will realize how ineffective that actually is. Yeah, and I mean, when we had the company, I often got the question, so how was week 27 yet last year? Yeah, so I don't know. Well, I, I can tell you how 20, <laughs> week 27 was last year, but yeah. it, it can't tell you anything about how it's going to be this year. Yeah, yeah. But the other yeah. the other difficult thing that we've always we've always discussed how best to communicate it is that, you know, as a lot of these destinations are developing, we could have prime weeks that should be catching a lot of fish where we don't have a single guest on it because we just haven't got to the point of the development where we have enough bookings to really show what is possible. Um, no, exactly. And there also comes a point where it's not fair for um, all of us to keep going out and showing fo- you know, hundreds of photos of us catching fish on those weeks because that does no good either. Um so you no, know, I mean, and, and and we we saw the same issue when when we started with Cambonka. Yeah, uh, we started marketing. Uh, we were recommending guests to to come from the fifteenth of June and later. Yeah, and I mean, we we had 
we had voices saying on social media, there's no point in going there. There's no fresh fish up there that time of year. <laughs> you can only catch them in Onk in August. And I mean, so it was pretty much uphill. But as soon as we started fishing more effectively from early season, yeah, of course we we're catching them. You well, wouldn't catch them in the numbers you would in August when you have more stale fish occupying the, the spawning grounds. But you would catch them. Yeah. Certainly. Oh, well, this is how we met, isn't it? I mean, uh, I I ended up coming to Onka for the first time, sort of around the middle of June. Maybe it's that yeah. that first week there, or or the second. I'm not sure. Um, but I mean, my my first day up there, I I lost a good fish in the mid twenties, and in the evening, I had one about thirteen, fourteen pound, and both of them were sparkling fresh. Um, yeah. And we've even been up there on. Um, on like little exploratory things to learn more about you were showing me and renee some more of the linear river in kangas and we also visited onka and there you know right at the start of the season really or or again around the middle of june hooked a fish you know 10 11 pounds something like that that was sparkling fresh again um and to put that into perspective we're talking how much you know 250 260 kilometers from the sea uh yeah 230 230 yeah something in that region still a bit and i mean uh, and we did exactly the same exactly the same spot at patakoski where you got yours yeah i think it was the year before we had sebastian hope from uh, the financial times there yeah doing an article for how to spend it and we did exactly the same with him, and this was way early into the season. I mean, it was not the tenth of June. If it was the sixth or the eighth, I can't remember. Yeah. But it just it just shows that, of course, if you're fishing the right spots, even early season, the numbers aren't great, but the chance of you hooking into a big fish are, of course, bigger, Absolutely. like anywhere else. Well, yeah. I, I've I've spoken to a few people that have have shared the same theory that the rivers will fill up from the top down inevitably um so it's not it's not surprising to find the fish up there um no no. and you know the first year that i came up i I said you know are there any are there any fish being caught up there and you told me that they'd actually caught fish as far up as lineo village which is even further up river yeah and this was before i even arrived in in mid-june um Uh, and i mean a good example when you saw this yourself when we were fishing in 2016. Yeah. With Hookie. Yeah. Because the numbers passing by, and this was around midsummer in Sweden, so that's the end of June, right? Yeah. And they are bombarding. Yeah. I mean, if there's few numbers of them, they're super difficult to catch because they are moving that fast. Mm-hmm. They they want to to force these currents and get upstream, and that's as quick as possible. But when they come in numbers. Then the fishing all all of a sudden also is also good in lower regions of the river. Yeah. But they move so extremely fast. Even the big rabbits like Shengis, a lot of the time we'll see them come in in a small scroll. They'll show head and tails at at the tail out of the of the last pool before the rabbits. Yeah. And it'll take three four minutes. Then you'll see them head and tail a last time before leaving the pool and actually entering exactly. the main rapids. So they move so extremely fast. I mean, they're not they're not hanging around just for the fun of it. No, no. 
as lo- as much as we hoped that they would, <laughs> they don't. Yeah, yeah, it would be amazing if they could just stay a week or two. Yeah, yeah. I guess that doesn't really start happening at Schengis in- until sort of July time, though, right? No, exactly. Then you start to get more. Of course, you'll get a few of those early early fish who will also become resident fish for Schengis. But, yeah. But it, it's no numbers. I mean, June's fishing in Schengis is primarily on uh, on my uh, migrating fish. Yeah. Because it's important to know, actually, that uh, around Schengis, above it and below it, for some way, is actually all spawning grounds as well. So, yeah. um, you know, we've we've discussed recently about the the scientific team um, on the Finnish side that have been doing the the um, tracking satellite tracking operation. Um, you were telling me that they've they've actually suspect that fish are moving up and down the system several times. Yeah. And and it has also shown now we don't we won't see the final report before next year. Yeah, but the ones we marked uh, the first year, so that's two years ago, uh, we got a little bit of a of a first peep on on their behavior. And what we saw was that a lot of them they would they would first go upstream a bit, and then they could go a hundred kilometers downstream in the <laughs> system and find like a bit. Uh, I mean, the rivers here are so big that. Uh, some of the areas they can be like a kilometer wide river. Yeah, yeah. But this is then, of course, further down towards the sea. Yeah. But then they would go down there and probably find deep and calmer water mm-hmm. because of higher water temperature. Stay there for a while and then start moving again once the water temperature drops, which is often, most of the time, does latest in mid-August. Yeah. Because what what you have to realize up here in the in the summer we got midnight sun, so if we get a warm summer, it can be really warm. Oh, mighty warm! Yeah, yeah. because. It, it warms 24-7. Yeah. But as soon as we get into August, we get darker nights again. And then it gets cooler during nighttime and then also the water temperature drops. And especially, I mean, if you're lucky enough to be fishing here when you get the first night frost. Yeah. And then with, with, with nice weather during daytime, the fishing is normally amazing. Yeah. 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 They start to be active. But on that subject with the fish moving up and down, um, I mean, I've I've seen it a couple of times, and I assume it's what's happening. Like I've seen on the Scottish rivers, is that the, these fish that have been in a while will drop down, and when the conditions are good for a fish to start moving again, often um, you find a small number of fresh fish coming in with them as well. Particularly the grills during the August time is is a good time to see that. But I mean, I I had a fantastic season 2016 again the when it was the big big number of fish uh just a few days in um lineo in kangas yeah in one small spot and we were catching about i don't know how many we had in total it was over 20 anyway but the mixture of fish was fish that had been in clearly since the beginning of the season and some of them were bright fresh yeah but they were clearly moving together because you know the the river would be dead quiet and then suddenly everything just just lit up. Yeah, and I think it's relatively common. I mean, they'll they'll scroll up during warm periods of time in, in the same water, and then once temperature drops and maybe a little rise on on the water, then they'll start moving. Of course. Yeah, yeah. But what's really interesting about the fish when they're moving in, like you were saying, we we can clearly see that they're sort of heading and tailing at the bottom of the pool and then you see them at the at the top and just before they're about to go up um i remember you telling me about your uh, your biggest fish to date <clears throat> that you actually saw the fish or at least you saw a fish 
yeah. doing this pattern and and went straight out to this the famous now famous shark fin stone in the power line to try your luck and was successful yeah exactly i mean i mean the pool the way that pool works is that in lower water conditions even early season they'll come in quite close to the bank but in lower conditions you can't really fish them effectively yeah uh, where, where they come in the water is too slow uh, and to be fair i'm not much of a retriever uh, I, I like the the current to do most of my yeah, swing yeah so i'd rather go out then when i see them and, and fish them from the shark fin stone and, and the power line pool which we can only fish in lower water so i saw fish big fish moving in there at least one and and then I, I simply just went out there and, and hoped for the best. And sure enough, I was lucky enough to hook a fish. And and uh, it was heavy, uh, as they often are in, in June. I mean, e- even a, a good, like, high teens fish or, or early 20s will be heavy in the currents out there. But that it was a good fish, I knew anyway. So... It did a few runs uh, quite far down to the neck, which is a stretch of maybe 120, 30 meters. Uh, but every time I could get it into that bay water uh, that that we have on the inside mm. of, of the power line pool. And, but eventually he sort of decided that was not the way he was going to do it. I think it was the <laughs> third or fourth time he, he did a run. He just took that main current, which is really hard, 45 degrees downstream. So I had to, to run over this this bay, which is, it's too deep anyway for me, I'm 182. So you do get wet as, uh, as you're running in towards the bank in a, in a 45 degree angle, but, but it's possible. And, and it's only like three or four steps where you get like proper wet. Yeah. Then after that, you got your waders over the, over the water line again. And, and for p- perspective that the water there is, is non-existent in flow really it's just a no 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 it, it stands still yeah still pretty much in in these water levels it's safe enough uh, yeah 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 there's no problem there uh and then uh yeah well the fish just continued down so from from the upper part of zone zone two and then turned the corner on zone three there's an island just before that but it was so far out that i could just lift her the rod up high yeah. and I, I, I didn't get stuck in our island uh, at the island pool but as it turned the corner on down to zone three uh, there's this big birch which is really helpful when they do this because then the the backing can actually be on the on the birch tree on the bar yeah instead of cutting stones and other stuff or smaller branches and get hooked up so you actually use that as a i don't know if a you little call guide it a leverage yeah yeah a guide and then eventually, <clears throat> when I got down to Savikorp in zone three, I could do the last bit of the fights down there. And, and also there we have a, a bay. So I could get him into the bay and do the last bit of the fights and actually land him there myself. Yeah, yeah. And that's my biggest to date. That was a, a fresh June fish measuring 118. Cracker. What, what Still not you, 128. No. But, <laughs> but, but what would you put a fish like that at weight-wise? 16 kilos. 16 kilos. Okay, so sort of high... Th- high 30s yeah yeah that's an awesome fish it was a fantastic fish yeah. and the fight was really good so yeah, so yeah. that helps a good memory there's a bit of a club there isn't it of people that have had to run down to the bottom and christian has uh, has joined that several times <laughs> scott yeah. scott mckenzie had to do it as well i wish i'd have seen that <laughs> following the fish down because that's it's not an easy play in high water it's not an easy thing to traverse that little cliff 
on the the island, uh, especially if you're excited to get down there. No, you have to put your feet at the right place. Yeah, and everything. Yeah, exactly. But but I've uh, unfortunately we've seen a couple of failures as well. The first guy that I met that you had guiding in in Anka, Isaac, uh, hooked a cracking fish at the tail of the boat pool that took the outside of the island as well, but he got stuck. <laughs> so that was that was a shame. We managed to get it free, but he was gone by the time it went down there. Uh, and I had a guest last year that hooked a, a really spectacular fish that just cartwheeled all the way down the the middle of the tail of the boat pool. Um, and that, that one, we were lucky enough that the water was high enough and we could get the line over the island. But unfortunately, the hook straightened and his reel blew up <laughs> before we had the chance to to get get in touch with the fish. But yeah, it's uh, it's it's good fun when the big fish takes and decides to head off down there. It is. It did. <clears throat> I mean, we're, we're, I don't know what to say, but I suppose we're spoiled with having big fish here. I mean, <clears throat> we maybe have an average around, what, 15, 18 pounds. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which means we get to, to fight quite often, at least fish around or over one meter. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I think it's a super privilege. And, and that's also why I, I don't go much abroad for salmon fishing. No. If I do, it's only for an, a change in, in, in the environment to see something else, a different river. But... But I prefer to catch big fish if I can choose. And then uh, most of the time I might as well just stay at home and fish here. Yeah, yeah, certainly. I mean, for me, it was clear that the first time that I came, you were very generous in allowing myself and my brother to come over and fish Anka when, you know, neither of us a penny to our name at the time. <laughs> but even so, the cost of the fishing out there is is so relatively low compared to others as well that you kind of get the feeling that if you go out there and you're chasing the big fish, you're not going to empty your bank account every time you do it. So you can actually, you know, you lose a big fish there, you don't feel super heartbroken because you feel like it. you'll have a good opportunity to do it again in, you know, in a relatively short space of time, whether it's one, two, three years or whatever. Just the, the knowledge that you know yeah. that they're there and the opportunity is... Is there yeah, and I think that's one of one of the greatest things about salmon fishing in Sweden is that it's affordable for everyone. Yeah, I mean that's always been our goal, right? From day one, we said yeah, it, it yeah, has yeah. to be affordable for the average man, man and woman. We wanted to be able to make a living on our company, but we wanted to make sure also that most people could actually afford it. Yeah, uh, I mean, I we've never been high income takers uh, ourselves, and. And that's never been a goal in life, but we still like to fish. And I yeah. mean, in many places, salmon fishing has become something for uh, the more lucky gifted. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which I feel is, is at certain places, I suppose it's fine, but I don't think it's, it's good for the salmon long term. Mm. Because the more people who actually do salmon fishing and care about the salmon, the more voices we will also have if we see declining stocks. Yeah, yeah, certainly, yeah. So, oh, I, I'm I'm super glad that we have this this open access as we do in Sweden. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel incredibly fortunate every day to be involved in the capacity that I am, and super, super thankful that uh, that we crossed paths when we did, because I've I wouldn't have gone down. I probably wouldn't have gone down this line of uh, line of interest and career 
without it and we were no you, know, you would probably have been playing guitar somewhere yeah well i was for a little bit um when we <laughs> when we started this i still still was going at that and for those that have been watching all the recent fly tying videos and wondering why there's so much um rock music over the top of them it's because it's royalty free because i made it <laughs> <laughs> but yeah no it's uh it's uh, it's a super privilege just to just to even be there but to work with it and to, to work with people like yourself because there are so many like yourself that are involved in these projects and i hope to to share their stories on uh, on this show as well over the coming weeks um it's awesome I love I'm it. sure they'll be glad to participate. But listen, I don't want to be a, a bummer, my friend, but my phone is uh, running out of battery now. Yeah, for anybody that heard the Facebook message go off a minute ago, that was Lars telling me that he's about to die. So, yes. yeah, we'll sign off. Thank you very much for joining us today. And, my um, pleasure. We'll try and do it again sometime. Yeah, definitely. Maybe we can do it live from the Riverside next time. Yeah, that would be awesome. If we can make it out this year, that would be awesome. Aye. Uh, fingers crossed. Yeah, fingers crossed. All right, buddy. Cheers. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Take care, bud. You too. Bye-bye. Yeah, bye-bye. Thank you so much again for listening to today's episode. We hope you enjoyed the show. Any conversation with Lars ends up being pretty motivational and inspiring for me. So I hope you got something cool out of it too. If nothing else, that you can never underestimate the possibilities that are out there to work with what you love simply by asking the question and working hard at it. Lars has enjoyed a great career in the outdoor world across many countries and activities by asking the question. And I ended up working as a fly fishing tour operator for Swedish destinations the exact same way when he gave me the opportunity. Hopefully one day I will be able to reciprocate to the next generation of avid fly anglers as well. At least I look forward to being in a position to help others when the time comes. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to Fishtails on your favourite streaming platform. And if you would be so kind to leave a review about the show, that would be awesome. I just learnt yesterday that Fishtails is now on an official charting system and it's fairly high up already, but I'd love to get up there in the top five if possible. So if you're feeling generous, leave a review and don't forget to tell all your fly fisher friends. It's potentially the top five best fly fishing podcast in the world. <laughs> Thanks again to Lars for coming on the show we got there in the end i'm really looking forward to sharing the water again soon but until then this has been fishtails i've been your host jay bartlett and i'll catch you all very soon and as always tight lines mm-hmm.